I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Happy New Year, Kiki! Happy New Year, Tuesday! 2023! We've made it! We have made it to 2023! And what a year that this is going to be! Because there's a lot of big things to talk about in this year. What a way to start the year by talking about this great British television show that a lot of people have been talking about that it's in its connection to Disney now. Of course, I'm talking about Bluey! Bluey! <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Uh, we could do Bluey one day. If you, would you like us to talk about Bluey? <laughs> I'm well, I'd rather, I'd rather talk about a different blue dog, but that is known by Disney yet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, I'm talking about Doctor Who. 2023 is the 60th anniversary of this exciting adventure in space and time. Yeah, I mean, where, where we, you... we need to talk first about why we're finally allowed to talk about Doctor Who on a Disney podcast. Because this is a weird one. So back in October... Pretty much 48 hours after the final episode of The 13th Doctor aired, we got the message. It was blasted on all socials everywhere. Disney had acquired the international distribution rights to Doctor Who. And as soon as that was announced, I messaged Kiki, Hey, which Doctor do we start with? <laughs> yeah. It was immediately a massive panic in the UK. Um, <laughs> oh no, Disney has bought Doctor Who, which is not the case. Disney does not own Doctor Who. Our mandate is kind of broad when we talk about Disney things. This is not the first time we have extended it to... Disney distribution rights or Disney partnerships. Um, this is also how we talk about Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man is still, as of this recording, under Sony, but they have a partnership. So, or when we did Indiana Jones, Disney may own Lucasfilm, but they don't own those first four movies, which is still owned by Paramount, which, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean there there's some some distribution stuff and some character rights and some yeah it, it all gets a bit fuzzy. I mean but, there's, there's even a few Muppet movies that Disney doesn't really own the rights to. Yeah, um, but we're counting Doctor Who because for most of the world starting this year, Disney will be the place to go for Doctor Who. And also starting this year with the David Tennant specials and the 60th anniversary special, Disney is going to be pumping a lot of money into the production of Doctor Who as well. 
That's the other big thing. And that's the thing I think it really tipped it for us as to whether or not it, it really counted under our umbrella. Because these rights are not cheap. These distribution rights are not cheap. Over the last few years, Doctor Who streaming rights have jumped around to different uh streaming services almost on a yearly basis because it was on netflix for a while it was on amazon amazon prime for a while it still is on amc and hbo max and Britbox as of this recording yeah depending on which episodes you're looking for um mm. some of the classic stuff is still on Britbox in the u.s uh the newer stuff starting with um the Eccleston episodes up through the Whitaker episodes not all of the Whitaker episodes mind you but up through part of them are as of this recording still on HBO Max but they will be disappearing soon is my understanding uh in the move to Disney Plus um as well as I think they're going to be removed from BritBox. A lot of them have already disappeared from BritBox. Um, that was 90% of my reason for subscribing to BritBox, actually, was to get access to the Doctor Who episodes they had on there, and now most of them are gone. Yeah, um, it has been, if you are a Doctor Who fan, it has been a nightmare in the U.S. trying to keep up with where it is streaming and which episodes it's streaming because unlike other tv series where it's like oh you want to watch you know name any series um you can find it on this streaming service with doctor who it's like oh you want to watch doctor who well which doctor do you want to watch okay well you know doctors you know one through seven are on this service doctors nine through you know whatever is on this surface the eighth doctor movie is nowhere because no one wants to watch it uh <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> what are you you know uh so yeah yeah so we are going to be doing probably the biggest project we've ever done we've done theme months before this is going to be something bigger because we are going to go through as much of the 60-year history of Doctor Who as we can. So at least once a month, we are going to be dedicating that week to a different incarnation of the Doctor. And what better place to start than the first Doctor, William Hartnell. So set the TARDIS all the way back to 1963 as we are going to the very beginning of this series. Yeah, and uh, we have chosen to go all the way back to the very beginning and look at the very first thing anyone saw of the Doctor, because we are going to look at the very first episode called An Unearthly Child. We're not going to go through that entire first serial, which is the, the caveman. But we did want to talk about just what the public saw first off. 
But first, we want to talk just a little bit about how the series came to be, because how the series came to be is one of the most fascinating stories in television history. And I absolutely adore the people behind it. Doctor Who is the brainchild of two people, really. We have... uh, Sidney Newman, who really kind of thought up the the concept, um, and he was a Canadian who was working in England uh, for the uh, BBC, and he had been working on the Avengers. But not that one. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, Stephen Peel, not not Stark and Rogers. Yeah. Um, and he had worked on that show with a woman who is possibly one of my biggest heroes, uh, Verity Lambert. And she had she had worked with him on there and he was developing this idea of a children's television series that would use time travel to discuss the educational concepts of both history and science if you want to know why the first companions are Susan's history teacher and science teacher, there you go. The original concept of the show was that it was going to be educational in nature. And one week they would do a historical setting or at least, you know, one, one series, you know, one storyline would be historical They'd go and talk to some sort of historical figure and Barbara would get to be like, oh, yes, I remember this from history. And, you know, tell them a little bit about the context of the time they were in. And then the next story would be some kind of futuristic sci-fi setting where Ian, the science teacher, would get to explain some sort of, you know, scientific principle to everyone because that's his job as the science teacher. And Susan was the kid because we have kids watching. <laughs> yeah, but notably she's a teenager because the idea was it wasn't, you know, little kitty preschool hour. You know, this wasn't Blue Peter because they already had Blue Peter. That was the show for younger kids. Um, for the American audience, I don't really know how to explain Blue Peter if you've never really watched it. It's kind of an educational show. There's usually an arts and crafts segment. And there's a, <laughs> it's not really romper room. Um it, it there's it's kind of interactive Mr. Rogers with arts and crafts segments, and then they would ask kids little little kids questions and they would go 
oh, do you know the answer? Put your answers on a postcard, please, and send it in. And if you knew the answer, you'd get, you know, a special prize and you'd get these really cool enamel pins called Blue Peter badges. And, you know, if you did cool things, you'd get different colored ones and they became like a real kind of cool mark of honor in the thing and you know it, it's it's really neat i've i've seen lots of episodes uh, from you kind know of, kind of sounds a, like a combination of mr rogers and mr wizard or bill nye or something yeah it's it's basically like seven different american children's shows combined into one but it's it was generally for kind of younger kids and they wanted something that was kind of for the in in between set you know it wasn't for like the the older kids it wasn't for the little kids it they wanted like the tween set uh what we would call now ages 10 to 12 (laughs) yeah it it was they they didn't really have the word tween then but you know that that's kind of what they were going for Mm -hmm. um they wanted that that middle range um and so that's what sydney newman was going for and he asked Verity Lambert if you know like hey you want to come develop this thing with me and the idea was that Verity Lambert was going to be the first woman producer at the BBC now here's the the story that kind of doesn't get told a lot and doesn't get enough credit with Verity Lambert the men who ran the BBC did not like the idea of a woman producer is, is the back story. Um, She had been doing good work and was well-respected. Okay. Um, She, it, it was, it was fine, but the idea of her like running a show really wrinkled a lot of feathers is my understanding. And, they thought that this was too high of a concept that Sidney Newman was basically bringing them a turkey and it was destined to fail. So when he was like, Hey, let's do this. And I think that Verity Lambert is a good showrunner for it. They were like, yes, let a woman produce this high concept weirdness that yes, it will, it will work fine. So that's what happened. And the idea was in the minds of the uppers at the BBC, from what I, you know, from the the scuttlebutt and the popular understanding of the story, is that they expected this to fail. And well, there was really nothing like it on television at the time. We were two years out from Lost in Space, three years out from Star Trek. So something like this did not exist on television yet. And also, Doctor Who is a very different concept from both Lost in Space and Star Trek, even now. Mm. And so the the idea was she would fail, the, the show would fail, and they could say, well, you know, what did you expect? There's a woman in charge. And, you know, it would, it would be able to, to kind of set back not only, you know, high concept sci-fi stuff but also just women <laughs> um is is my understanding but verity lambert was an incredibly tenacious woman 
Um, and so with very little budget and no one really believing in the concept, um, she went and she got the stuff that she wanted and put together everything on what was basically a shoestring budget. And they aired the show and it did okay. But the first story, which is the caveman, which we are not doing all of, um, kind of did it did all right ratings, but it wasn't it wasn't going well. They were set to cancel the show after episode four. Yeah. They were not like this. The, the, the people aren't watching this show. No one. Yeah. You know, what do we, you know, you, you got to pull it. Uh, you have to kill Doctor Who. Let's talk about the the first impression of the show with what they saw with Unearthly Child. Because I think it's important to to say what our our setup is and what the the public saw. It is important to note that the public saw this literally the day that the news broke that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we're sorry to announce that the president of the United States has been assassinated. Here's this sci-fi special television show for you. Yeah, and and I and I know that it wasn't the great national tragedy in the UK that it that it was. World, I mean, everything a, everything a world, got preempted in the US. Yeah, but a a world leader was was assassinated in public. That's world news. Well, yeah, but it it um it did lead to an a short delay of a few minutes for a news broadcast to go out over the BBC and then they played the episode. Uh, however, they aired it the next week and then they re-aired An Unearthly Child the next week before the next episode in the Caveman story. Because they thought that probably people did not see it because the breaking news probably disrupted households and it did not get the the viewership that it probably should have. It it opens with us seeing the police box in a junkyard. And I love this because the very first character you see in the very first episode of Doctor Who is the TARDIS. Who we do not find out is an actual character for quite some time. The Doctor is is not even aware that the TARDIS is sentient for quite some time in the series. You know, the British public at the time would have understood how odd a police box inside a junkyard would be because that was should a very common sight at the time in the 60s. Yeah, I was saying we should explain what a police box is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mo most of our audience is American, so 
you know, apologies to the Brits listening who have to hear a couple of Americans badly explain your culture. I mean, that was that was common. It was, you know, the cops would arrest people, throw them in the box or citizens arrest. Or if you need a police officer, there's a, there, that's where the telephone is. You open the box. There's a phone. You call the cops. <laughs> yeah. Before the before the invention of you know, 999, which in America is 911, you know, the emergency lines, uh, that's, that's how you get emergency help. Um, so there was generally one on every corner. And the idea was that when the doctor landed, that's what the chameleon circuit in the TARDIS picked up on as this is, yeah. This is the most common thing around this is the easy disguise. But, of course, it eventually becomes an anachronism because there are no police boxes anymore in in the UK. I mean, not none. I think there are still a few around as historical artifacts. But now, if you see a police box, people will call it a TARDIS. Because that's the modern understanding of a police box, because they are no longer a a public thing, to the point where I believe the BBC now has a copyright on the idea of a police box. Wow. Um I I may I may be wrong on that. It may be a, a specific style now. It is very fascinating. They they were different different colors in different places and and everything, but I think that blue type that I believe was used in London that might be now uh, a a trademark of the the BBC. But yeah, the 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 point being that at the time it would have been just such a common thing to walk past that nobody would have would have thought about it. But in the modern series, it becomes a, a remarked upon thing uh, when they're in the UK of people going like, "Wow, you know, when was the last time you saw one of these? Why are you in a box, Doctor?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, then we we see. Um, the Coal Hill School, which is where Susan, the doctor's granddaughter, is in. And we see all the really cool 60s fashions on the the students and everything. And we see the, the two teachers, um, Barbara and Ian, talking about this one really weird student they have, Susan. And how she does not act like the other students because she is too smart and she knows too much and she says very weird things in class. But she's also completely unknowledgeable in other things. But that's only because that's that's how she is. You know, she's from a different point in history. She's from a different world. Well, you that's know. that's what we eventually find out and what yeah. they eventually find out. But at, at the time they're talking to each other, it's just 
have you noticed her doing and saying strange things in class? And they talk about that, that she is too smart and answers questions too quickly. And, you know, yeah, Susan, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is though, is that some of the things that Susan says are so funny in retrospect like when Barbara mentions that Susan doesn't know how many shillings are in a pound. And Susan's response is, I'm sorry, I thought we were on the decimal system. And Barbara says, no, you know that the United States has a decimal system, but that we do not. And she says, oh, yes, it must not have not have taken place yet. Which watching it now is hilarious because of course now they are on the decimal system susan is ju just a few years out of date you know she's a couple of decades out of date and yeah and uh, and ian tries you know tries to trip her up with a question in, in science class that every other student can get uh perfectly but she has trouble because it's a question in three dimensions. And she says, well, and she says, I need the other two. As in, she thinks in five dimensions. Yeah. Which makes sense once you get to the TARDIS. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, of course, Ian is baffled of, like, why are you talking about, you know, more than, time, three yeah. more than three dimensions. It It is so adorable kind of to to see some of the things that they've put in there my my favorite one is when she's she's listening to her radio and she talks about her favorite musician john smith <laughs> and that actually being his his performance name you know it's his pseudonym his alias yeah yeah and it's um, from, uh, the, the biggest act of 1982 and the fact that there wasn't an artist named John Smith having a hit in 1982. Sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I like that the, the John Smith pseudonym joke started all the way back in Unearthly Child. It just beautiful, beautiful. Love it. There are so many tiny little things like that throughout and then they they can't figure her out because barbara says that she has been to she decided to pay susan a visit at home and she went by susan's house but there's not a house there there's just a junkyard and so uh as good teachers do uh, Barbara and Ian decide to stalk Susan <laughs> by following her to see where she goes. Which, I don't know, maybe just use your words and ask her some questions. I don't know. but um, Yeah, and, and they mention, you know, she lives with her grandfather, who is a doctor. Yeah, which they think is nice, and yeah. But uh, they get there and they find a police box inside the landfill. That's strange. Aren't these usually on street corners? 
that's where we get our first viewing of the wonderful William Hartnell. Uh, who comes out and starts acting all doddering old man uh, about it. William Hartnell was known to the British public before Doctor Who. He had had a film and television career before that, and theater career, of course. And apparently the way he got the part was he had been in a film called This Sporting Life that Verity Lambert really liked. And so when they needed someone for their new little children's show they were working on, she sought him out and was like, hey, we need somebody who can be grandfatherly. But also kind of crotchety old man. He didn't really want to do it. And uh, Verity Lambert kind of had to keep at him. And uh, also the director of the first episodes, um, Waris Hussein, kind of kept at him. And eventually he was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll see. And it became the thing he was most known for. So. Yeah. Uh, kind of a funny thing, and, and you know, it's not important to the story, but I'll say it anyway. William Hartnell, his hair really wasn't never that long. It's a wig. Yeah, but it, it's such a good look for him. No. You know, it, it's 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 a good look for for the character. It. Yeah, the the, the long white hair. It gives him that slightly out of sync with everybody else because it was not a hairstyle common among men at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it just gave him that you're not from around these parts kind of (laughs) kind of feel, you know, As, as well as the entire costume. It did, but I I like the I, the idea of the the way they styled the first Doctor because it really did set him apart from just from the moment you see him, you get the sense of this this man is not in the right spot. And I'll I'll, I'll mention this now. Because we're about to get into that part of the episode, and that, and and it'll come up more times as we talk about this uh, this era of Doctor Who. BBC was notoriously cheap, and uh, to the point where they didn't really have enough film and or tape to do a second take of anything. You had to get it in one, because hey, we have this much studio time. You have to film the entire episode today. We don't care how you do it. So you had to get it in one. And Hartnell, uh, he is he's an old man. And uh, this is kind of the start of his uh, degeneration. I'll just say it kindly. Hartnell would flub a lot of his lines. To the point where it had to become a character trait of the Doctor. So if you flub your lines, if you are off your mark 
or anything like that. There's no take two. That's in the show. And uh, as you as we were talking before we went on, yeah, there are times where you'll see the boom mic in the shot. That's in the show now. <laughs> yeah, the TARDIS has so many boom mics. It's just it's just a feature of the TARDIS in the early series. <laughs> TARDIS is just filled with boom mics. Yeah. Uh but yeah, the the it is kind of fascinating how many times you'll you'll just be watching these early episodes and they'll be like the Daleks are coming from the web with the with the western the the Daleks are coming from the western edge of the yeah, the it's like you'll just be like we gonna get a take two for that? Nope, we're not. We're just gonna we're we're moving on with that. Okay, all right, that's fine. <laughs> like, I, we need to get the, the radiation drug gloves, uh, drugs. Yep, it's a uh, it's it's electro powered. I mean, electrical magnetic powered. <laughs> like, there's no no take two. It's one one and done. Because we need to get out of here before midnight, and it is four thirty. We gotta finish. We gotta finish filming this episode. It's interesting how little they cared what they put out over the airwaves. Because the interesting thing is, they didn't think anybody would ever watch this stuff twice. Yeah. Okay. Let's let, let's rip the let's rip the bandaid off of that one. <laughs> so yeah. we gonna talk about junking. Oh my yeah. god. Let's talk about what? junking. Okay, so those of you who are big Doctor Who fans will already know this, but for those of you who are not, um, we don't have all of Doctor Who. And the reason why is because BBC did not consider it important enough to keep. Yeah, well, this was a, yeah, this was an era <laughs> where reruns were a thing, but they weren't a profitable thing. It was an era decades before home video was even thought of. So you would air a show once, you might even air the show twice. There's no money in a third airing, so uh, junk it. Then that just wasn't the BBC, that was pretty much television in general. The ability to record as far as any sort of magnetic videotape um, was only available at least in the in the US um sometime in the mid 50s for studio stuff um it wasn't available for home recording until you know sometime in the 70s if you had you know a lot of money most of us poor people didn't get it until the 80s sometime. Uh, but it was really, really expensive. And it was really expensive and cost a lot of storage space, as in physical building space, to preserve any sort of television recording. The guy who plays Ian uh, in this, uh, who is uh, William Russell, he was well known for doing 
a Nicholas Nickleby series for the BBC. None of that survived because it was broadcast live and never recorded. So it was never shown again. You either watched it when it aired or you didn't. Majority of the episodes of Doctor Who that we do have are thanks to other networks keeping their copies of the episode of the copies of the episodes that they got to air on their networks. Private collectors and sometimes the directors themselves, because sometimes the people who come in directing the directors that made these episodes would want to keep at least one of the episodes for their portfolio. Every episode of Doctor Who exists in audio format, thanks to people who work at the BBC and fans. Thankfully, some of them have been reconstructed through animation, but as of the actual original episodes, we don't know if they still exist. They might. They might. I mean, there are some some people that say that most of them exist within within the collections of private collectors. If they do, please, private collectors, let the world see these episodes. And if they're gone forever, then they're gone forever. There is a special hell out there if there is a private collector who has a Doctor Who episode that they're keeping and they're just like, I'm the only one who can see it. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to tell anybody I have this just so that I can watch it. <laughs> like, that is a special sort of evil and there is like an extra special hell for that person. <laughs> like, if, if, you, if you own it and you don't know what you have, like, no harm, no foul. You know, like, you know, if, if somebody, like, passes away and their children are like, oh, we discovered they had this and they just didn't realize that, like, everybody was looking for it. Like, not mad at that person, but, like, if you're specifically keeping something like that just to be like, ha ha ha, I have it and you don't, you are, like, the, like, the worst. <laughs> like, oh my god. Just, just, just throwing that out there. The so yeah, let's 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 get back to this episode. So we have Ian and Barbara talking to the doctor in the junkyard. They want to know where Susan is. He says, "Well, go get a policeman. This is my property. I'm not letting you." I'm, I love I'm, I love Ian just standing there, like posturing about, like I'll go get a policeman to try to find because they think they hear. Susan's voice because she's actually calling from inside the TARDIS but of course that can't be because it's a police box and nobody can be inside the police box e even though it's built to be big enough to, to have a person shoved what kind, inside what it. kind of well, what kind of grandfather will lock their grandchild in a police box well they don't know he's he's her grandfather yet he's just a random old man wandering around but I love Ian just standing there being like, I'll go get a policeman. And I want to go like, well, good thing you're standing next to a police box. <laughs> just <laughs> like, open that door. Call. Yeah. I'm like, come on, Ian. Think it through. This is before uh, the this is before the TARDIS had a working telephone. <laughs> he doesn't know that. 
<laughs> as far as he knows, this is a regular police box. You're literally standing next to the thing that calls police. I'll go find a policeman. Love you, Ian. You're a smarty. Um, but but yeah, so then eventually uh, Susan, not knowing anybody's out there, opens the TARDIS door and Barbara's like, hey, I'm just going to run into the TARDIS. Like, you know, because Barbara is also smart. Um, and then we get the first look of the interior of the TARDIS. And, you know, it, you know the gloomy outside of the of the junkyard to the white the bright white interior of the TARDIS which for you know 60s no budget BBC TV is really kind of awesome and yes Whovians if you've only known if you only know the modern Who who is the person that says the line it's Susan. Susan is the first person to ever say it's bigger on the inside. And she's also the one that gave it the name TARDIS. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Red cons later, but that's a different thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Tard uh, Doctor Who is full of retcons and continuity errors. And oh, we will we will get to some of those in just a second. But Doctor Who, Doctor Who, where everything is canon and nothing is canon. Well, they didn't have a concept of canon because, I mean, it's important to establish that right now as we go through Doctor Who. Yes. At this point, right now, as they were creating the series. They did not have an idea really like we would of canon because, like we just said, they never thought anybody would watch any of this twice. They were making a show for kids to come home from school and watch and then never see again. They were going to be very surprised if any kid remembered two weeks from now, what had happened two weeks prior. Yeah. That that was kind of it. It was soap opera for kids. That's that's what they were making. So, like, yes, it did sort of have a continuous storyline, but it wasn't really that important, and they didn't really expect people to pay close attention. The fact that there are a whole bunch of nerds that can tell you <laughs> the most intimate details of this character's really bizarre life. Uh, and the fact that many of those fans went on to work on various official Doctor Who projects that for the most part exist solely to explain away all these continuity errors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fact that it bothered enough of those kids to go like, one day I'm going to grow up and write for this show and make sure that this episode and that episode finally make sense together. Um, there, there are already uh, at, at least two doctors who were so annoyed by this that they grew up and became doctors just to fix this. And already, what, th three... Three showrunners, I think, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> that had that say. So, like, two doctors and three showrunners that like were so obsessed with this nonsense that 
<laughs> that we've gotten to this point. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and we get the 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 you know Susan here like, trying to explain it. Like I'm not from this planet. I'm not from this time. And they don't believe her. It's like you know you're you're delusional. Your grandfather has put ideas into your mind. You're 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 one of us. You belong in this time. You're you're not from the future. You're not an alien. You're from here. And I love Susan immediately is like, you just walked into a tiny box in a landfill, and now you are standing into the middle of a giant room in a spaceship. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love I love how Susan plays that that bit. Yeah. Of like hi can can you not can you not believe your own eyes you Mr. Science <laughs> teacher? <laughs> yeah. Cuz Ian is standing there going like I just walked all the way around tiny box and now we are standing in giant room that cannot fit in tiny box. Ow my brain. And he, you know, he thinks the doctor is a charlatan. He thinks he's he's a hack. This is a trick. This this is the, the, where's the trick? Where's how how are you making this happen? Yeah, stage magic. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, and apparently, the most interesting part about this first episode is that the doctor himself is almost a non-entity in it. It's called Doctor Who. But other than the fact that that we do kind of get the title drop when when Barbara and Ian call him Dr. Foreman, because that's Susan goes by Foreman because she took the last name from the junkyard that they land in is Foreman's junkyard. Come on, Dr. Foreman, huh? Dr. Who? Who's he talking to? <laughs> yeah. Um and so that's that's kind of, you know, where that comes from. The doctor himself is just other than kind of stand around and, and be angry at these two humans that have shown up. Uh, I like it, that. It kind of does not do anything. I mean, he he he's not the doctor that we know from the other series. He hasn't. He's a doctor that hasn't found his love of humanity yet. He kind of detests humanity. He, he sees them as lesser beings. Uh, you know, the, that line he says, uh, I tolerate this this timeline, but I don't I don't enjoy it. Well, Susan wanted we get the we get the impression from this first episode that Susan they landed here, you know, escaping the Time Lords. We don't know why yet. We don't even hear the word Time Lord. We just know that they're on the run from their planet and their species. They're hiding here on Earth. The doctor is tolerating it. But Susan wanted to go to school and hang out and be with, you know, other kids because they keep referring to her as a kid. Um, she's a Time Lord, so she's probably like 200 and something. But, you know, the thing is, though, is that the the funniest thing is that when they ask uh, Caroline Ford, who plays uh, Susan, um, when they asked her to come back for the Five Doctors special, they initially did not want to acknowledge Susan as the the granddaughter of the Doctor. 
and they wanted to just call her a companion. And so the script would not allow her to call him grandfather. And Caroline Ford said, you know, what, why, why is it dancing around their relationship? And they told her, um, well, to say that he has a granddaughter is to suggest that the doctor may have had relations with someone in order to have a child and thus to have had a granddaughter. And we don't want to suggest that the doctor may have ever had relations with another That is person. an opinion, and that is an opinion that a lot of Doctor Who fans still have. Like, they do not like the idea. I mean, there are stories, there are people who have written stories, official, official Doctor Who media. That somehow explain away that Susan was never the doctor's granddaughter at all. That he was just that he was a teacher of this young girl who may or may not have been the Time Lord President's daughter, and they ran away together. And that was their cover of as grandfather and grandchild. Because there are and it's still today that there are there are fans who do not like the idea of the doctor having a relationship. We've seen the doctor get married quite a few times. <laughs> and I, I think that was probably the reason why in the reboot, they kind of leaned heavily, not heavily, heavily, but, you know, they kind of leaned into that and had the doctor say things like, you know, well, I was a father once and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because they wanted to kind of shut those people up. When the show initially started that people just kind of accepted that like, well, yeah, of course that was a, and that it was really only later that people kind of started to, to be like, no, we don't want her to be his like real granddaughter, you know. But I we think. I think right. the show has now officially come down on the side of like, yes, okay. The doctor, much like Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's just leave it at that. And like I said, we have actual to... legitimate granddaughter. But yeah. yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing of the there at least in the original continuity, if you're going to take it from Unearthly Child. The idea was that they were pretty early on in their run from the Time Lords. And and the reasons themselves change up, but it pretty much comes down to, at least, you know, again, this is later on after this episode, decades after this episode is aired, but, you know, the Time Lords promised, you know, they swore to always observe, never interfere, and the Doctor and his, and his granddaughter was like, why why limit ourselves to just observing you know i don't want to read about history we want to interfere all of the interference darn it we i don't want to read about history in a book i want to experience history firsthand i want to meddle in history come on meddling time lord is another guy he's a monk that's a different story yeah <laughs> but uh so yeah that but but the point is is that the 
the doctor decides like nope cannot have these nosy humans around we're leaving earth and he kidnaps them he kidnaps them yeah um since he can't have earth knowing about the uh their presence uh he decides like nope 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 we're uh we're getting out of here and uh he he just kidnaps them, and they end up all the way back in the Stone Age, and that is where we have our big cliffhanger for that first thing. The rest of the serial is about them dealing with, um, you know, cavemen trying to make fire. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's pretty boring. I'm going to be honest. That's why we didn't do the rest of the story because it, yeah. it is is pretty. Uh, if this was the story I saw back in 1963, I would agree with the BBC. It maybe maybe we shouldn't let this show go further than these four episodes. But we also get the first TARDIS sound, the famous TARDIS sound, and I love the story behind 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 it. At it's a house key scraping along piano wire. That's how yeah, they made the so famous good. TARDIS sound. And Foley people are amazing. So, and it, it, the the thing, the 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 big takeaways from the caveman episodes are that for some reason the TARDIS controls are are malfunctioning, and that for some reason the TARDIS is still shaped like a police box. That 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 really is the main takeaways of the. Uh, the um the caveman stories but after those couple of weeks things were faltering because the cavemen weren't really hitting and then we had our next adventure which starts out with a little something called the dead planet and this is where we get to our idea of well, you have one set in the past, and we get to do the history teacher, and then one set in the future, and we get to have the science teacher shine. And it starts off with them having escaped the cavemen, and they end up landing in a petrified jungle that is mostly made of metal. It was, uh, again, in the Caveman episode, they, they reference it, and here it becomes a plot point where before they leave the TARDIS, they have to check the radiation uh, monitor to see if the air is breathable. Oh, it's fine, it's fine. And then that radiation monitor shoots up to dangerous levels. Yeah, that becomes a plot point. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're on a world that is completely covered in radiation. We're, we've gone full fallout here. <laughs> Yeah, but full fallout where everything is basically kind of made out of metal, like the the they come across a giant lizard statue thing, but the doctor says, no, even when it was alive, it was still made out of metal. Things do not have to be made out of flesh and bone to be alive, you know? <laughs> and, and we just talked about the TARDIS <laughs> yeah and the interesting thing is is that this should be the point where suddenly 
Ian and Barbara are like, oh, wait, I know that these these two people that were traveling around in a police box didn't say that they're aliens, but they look human. But now we're legitimately in a spot that is confirming for us, like, alien life. Before we get into the rest, I want to make one. I, we need to talk about the phrase. Sidney Newman, when he went to show, when he did this, when he, want, when he agreed to the science fiction aspect of it, he had a rule. That he did not want what he called bug-eyed monsters in his show. Because he hated the idea of costumed alien creatures. And we're about to talk about the story about the first story of the Daleks. And he hated them completely. Like, I, this is exactly what I was talking about. I do not want these monsters in my show. This, these props are going to cost too much to build. Why can't these creatures look like people so it can be cheap? But uh, Verity Lambert, badass, said, no, this is, this is the story we're going with. It has to be this way. This is a planet full of radiation, and the only way these creatures survived are by being in these tanks. Can we just can we just take a moment to reiterate how much of this show was just Verity Lambert wandering in and being like, "Hi, I'm Verity Lambert, and this is going to be the most awesome show on television." <laughs> Because I really need to impress upon everybody how much of early Doctor Who was just Verity Lambert wandering in and being like, I know everybody wants me and my show to fail, but screw you guys. This is going to be the best show on television. Uh, and I'm going to be legendary. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they're, they're going through this planet of that's filled with radiation. They don't know that. And through the episode, they start getting sick, and they don't know why. And we find out it is because this planet is completely filled with radiation. They suffered radiation poisoning. Yeah. But we, we have to talk about, as, as they, they find uh, in the distance, towards the end of the first episode, a... Well, about halfway through the first episode, they find a city in the distance, and Ian says, I don't want to go to the city, and the other, you know, the two women say, eh, we don't want to go to the city, and the doctor's like, but we need a widget for the TARDIS, and I uh, bet you the only yeah. place we're going to find it is in the city. This shows what how a, how a completely different person the doctor is, as he purposely sabotages the TARDIS. To say, oh, we're, we're this part broke, and the only way I can fix it is to go to the city and get parts to fix it. Oh, really, Doctor? The only way that we can fix this part is to go into that city over there and repair it. Yes, that's exactly what we need to do, Chesterton. So, yeah, the Doctor literally puts these two people that he kidnapped, mind you, as well as his own granddaughter, in danger... Because he wants to go exploring. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, knowing I mean, what we know about the daughter now, it kind of doesn't seem out of character, but um but they they finally get to the city, and of course, uh Barbara doesn't understand the rules, which is you never split the party. 
And she goes wandering down one hallway as everybody else goes wandering down another hallway. And the first part of this serial ends with one of the most amazing shots in Doctor Who history. As Barbara turns around and starts screaming her ever-loving head off as a menacing plunger starts coming toward her. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine being a kid in 1963? Christmas is just a few weeks away. You're sitting at home, and what you see is the teacher on your t- on the TV show you're watching screaming her head off as this robot arm is reaching towards her face. We don't even know it's a robot. All we know is that it's a plunger. It's a plunger, and it's an being waved <laughs> menacingly towards a screaming woman. Come on, it's it's that is gold. Like, and that cliffhanger caught so many people because throughout this entire serial, the ratings just kept kept going up and up and up. People, while people may not have been interested in the historical aspect of the of the show they were really hooked on to the sci-fi yeah and then the very next uh week the show picks up exactly from that point with the plunger being waved at barbara and it cuts back to the other three trying to make their way through and suddenly they are surrounded by dun 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 the very first appearance of the Daleks in their full Dalek glory. Our looking little... basically like they do now. I mean, they've had a few redesigns since, but it is almost exactly the same design. Our favorite pepper pot fascists. <laughs> yeah, and and before before anybody comes at us, this story that we are talking about right now was written by Terry Nation to be a Nazi allegory. The, he has said it over and over and over again. The Daleks even lift their plungers in the salutes at one point in the serial. Yeah. Just to hammer the point home. These are space Nazis. End of story. Daleks have always been space Nazis from their first appearance. So shut up about that. I mean, if you were to describe what the Dalek looks like, he looks like a giant metal trash can with a toilet plunger on one hand and an egg whisk on the other. Someone will say that that looks ridiculous and that no no way would be scary. But so many children in 1963 were scared and the Daleks gave them nightmares. The thing is, is that the um, the little ping pong balls around the skirting mm-hmm. were originally supposed to light up, and it was supposed to be uh, run on a car battery inside each Dalek. So the Daleks were originally supposed to all of those little, you know, Bumps. jokingly now called Dalek balls, <laughs> but they were supposed to all be lit up along the skirting and that was nixed because uh car batteries were too expensive in the 60s to put inside each dalek 
So they just get the little nubs on the on the, on on the top of their heads to light up, which again to this day is still. And that was only added so that the viewer at home could tell which Dalek was supposed to be speaking at any given time, because there was no other way to tell. So uh, you needed the the nubs to light up on the top so that they could tell who was talking. So and in a very, if again, if you're only familiar with the modern series, they. Get the Daleks shoot Ian in the leg with a paralyzing beam. If like they don't exterminate him, Daleks have a stun setting. Who knew? Um, that is not a thing that really happens now. It's exterminate D- first, ask questions later. Yeah. Um, the The interesting thing is, is that the guy who who designed the look of the Daleks was a guy called Raymond Cusick. And he was not the original person that was supposed to have done it. There was another guy working for the BBC as a production designer at the time. But he had a scheduling problem. And so Raymond Cusick got the job. The original guy that was supposed to design the Daleks, you may have heard of him. His name is Ridley Scott. (laughs) I am not kidding about that. The uh, the guy who directed Blade Runner, yeah, the, the the guy who directed Alien, yeah, that guy, he was he was supposed he was the guy that was on the the docket to create the the Daleks, and then he had a scheduling problem. They had to give it to the other guy. I really really want to visit the universe where Ridley Scott created the Daleks. <laughs> Please, TVA, come pull me out of my timeline. <laughs> And let me visit that timeline. I need to see that. Oh my god. We're going to be saying that a lot as we talk through this this show. And alternate storyline and alternate actors that could have been the Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So much so. But anyway, the... um. I, I'm, I'm very pleased with what we got. I mean, that's yeah. iconic, of course. Yeah. But um, seeing those on on screen absolutely ignited the imaginations of children around the UK to the point that in week four, they were on the verge of cancellation. By like week six or seven, number one show on the BBC. Dalek Mania. Yeah, Dalek Mania was what they called it absolutely gripped the entirety of the nation and it led to the BBC having something they had never had before which was merchandising merchandising yeah no other show that the or or anything that the BBC had ever done had led to merchandising prior to Doctor Who and suddenly people were like my my kid wants a Dalek toy my kid wants a TARDIS my kid wants a yeah and yeah that was a lot of money for Terry Nation because at this point uh if you were creating a character for these shows, you kept ownership of them, which means Terry Nation kept the ownership of the Daleks. His estate still has ownership of the Daleks to this day. The BBC has to pay a licensing fee 
to the estate of Terry Nation for the continued use of the Daleks. Which is why every time there's a Dalek episode, uh, it says in the credits, Daleks created by Terry Nation. Even a point where, uh, where Terry Nation, after he left Doctor Who, had the opportunity to take the Daleks with him. Uh, he would go on to do the show Blake 7 and was considering making the Daleks the main antagonist. He, yeah. was try- he was trying to take the Daleks to America and make a Dalek TV show. Problem was, Doctor Who wasn't in the U.S. yet, so they didn't know what he was talking about. A da what? A what? A what lek? <laughs> yeah. Um, you want to yeah. make a show about this trash can with a, pl- with a toilet plunger and an egg beater, and you want us to be scared of that? <laughs> Terry Nation's contributions to... Th- the uh, entirety of Britain are so great that uh, the house where he was born now has a blue plaque on it. If you're an American, you might not get the significance of that, but uh, yeah, if uh, somebody famous or historically important enough, uh, you, they will occasionally put a, uh, a blue plaque that's like... Uh, this is where somebody important was born or some famous event happened and everything. So, yeah, the uh, the house where Terry Nation was born now has a blue plaque on it. That's like, this is where the guy that created the Daleks was born. That's how important the Daleks are <laughs> to the UK. And rightfully so. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so we, we get the... The Daleks come in and uh, they surround the Doctor and Susan and Ian and they're like, uh, hey, we found the other chick. Uh, everybody get in the cell. And we get and we get the history of this planet, which we find out is called Scarrow. And how years ago, hundreds of years ago, there was a war between the two races on the planet, the Thals. T-H-A-L-S, and the Dolls, D-A-L-S. That would get retconned into the Kaleds later, but we're talking about now. But uh, We're yeah. going to make it easier on ourselves and call them the Thals and the Daleks because this is an audio podcast and that is a difficult thing to keep track of via yes. audio. So there was a war between the Thals and the Daleks. And the war ended when the Daleks dropped a neutron bomb irradiating the entire planet. Yeah, the important thing is, is that up until that point, it was two races of humanoids. And when the bombs dropped, everything started to mutate because of the radiation. Now, remember how I said that Doctor Who was supposed to be an educational show where the science teacher would explain science to you? Yeah, apparently between uh, week one and week, what are we on now, like six? Yeah. They totally threw that idea of we're sciencing this thing uh, out the window because their explanation is that... um, 
everything mutated, but apparently uh, evolution goes in a circle. And if you mutate enough, you mutate right back where you started from, which is, um, you may have guessed, not how things work. I mean, it was the 60s, so maybe you could, but no, no, even in the 60s, scientists knew that. And maybe if you'd called a scientist and asked, they would have told you that's not how evolution works. Yeah, so the Thals, like the, so the Thals and Daleks mutated into creatures, and the Thals were able to evolve back into humanoids and create anti radiation medication. Which uh, one of them tries to leave for the do- for the doctor and his crew, but ends up scaring uh, one of the regenerations out of Susan. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. Well, because they they thought they were on a dead planet, and something su- suddenly something is tapping Susan on the arm. <laughs> I mean, what would you do? Yeah, <laughs> I'm with Susan on that one. I. Susan probably would have regenerated right there. (laughs) Yeah, points taken away from the rest of the TARDIS crew, though, when Susan's like, hi, something tapped me on the arm in the middle of the forest, and everybody else is like, oh, Susan, you're making up stories. Yeah, like the time I made up a story about having a freaking time machine. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even the doctor does it. Yeah. And and I'm like, Doctor, please, you know your granddaughter. She is not given to, like, making up nonsense. I am going to say I like that the Thals and the Daleks and their backstory eventually got retconned about ten years after this. Because Terry Nation didn't have notes. Let's be real. Terry Nation didn't keep notes about his own writing and just, sure, whatever. <laughs> Well, but also because let's kind of just say the the uncomfortable thing here. When we meet the Thals who are the you know, you got a you got a planet that's full of um space Nazis and the other group that you're telling uh, and let's just go ahead and get this the entire point of this story is the doctor and his crew trying to tell people who are pacifists that you need to maybe not be pacifists and um you know what's really good war (laughs) which is also maybe a little uncomfortable and would be super uncomfortable if the thing you weren't supposed to go to war with was literally space nazis over a piece that he broke off the TARDIS because he wanted to go exploring. And Ian calls him out on it. Like, you want, yeah, them, to go, mean, you want them to go to war for you for what? For this little piece of the TARDIS you're going to hold up to them and say, here, here's what you've been dying for. Thank you for letting me go home. Yeah, I mean, this this whole plot is, is intensely problematic because it's like, well, okay, if the whole point had been like, well... Daleks are space Nazis and their entire thing is extermination of anything not Dalek. But the only problem is we don't exactly get that part of the Daleks entirely fleshed out in this story. So even though it was already a part of the Daleks and their creation, the audience is not completely aware of it during this story. Okay? 
All that we know is the Daleks want to irradiate the planet and kill the Thals so that only Daleks can live. So you kind of get it. It's just a bit more murky. The Thals, on the other hand, are like, no, pacifism only. We shouldn't fight for anything. And Ian's like, really? Even if I try to take your sacred historical relic? Even if I try to take your women? Which, by the way, Ian shut all of the up. I don't he was know. Doing, he was doing it. He was trying to make I know, a point. I know he was trying to make a point, but maybe make a point in a less sexist way. This episode is very sexist, by the way, because the Thals are very sexist. <laughs> like, the one woman that's with them tries to make a good point, and they're like, oh, maybe a woman should shut up. And then they were like, you, man, did you give them the drugs? And he was like, yes, but I had to give them to a woman. Was there not a man around to give the drugs to? No, sadly, there was not a man, only a woman. Ah, I a wish girl. you could have given the drugs to a, to a man. No, only a tiny girl. Ah, uh, well, maybe she will prove of use and give them to a man. Like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, all of you can shut up, too. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, the Thals are extremely sexist and weird, so maybe, you know. But, um, also, like, the fight is between the space Nazi pepper pots and an entire race of extremely blonde Aryan super beings. <laughs> like, yeah. Who are totally pacifist. It's very weird. Um, so that's weird because, and, and also I could not keep any of the characters, uh, separated because other than old man and girl, cause there's like one woman that's with them. There's like another that's in the back, but there's only like one woman that gets a speaking part. It's an entire group of Men who are the same height and the same build with the same haircut, wearing the same and costume. Similar, similar facial features. And very similar facial features. And we've already talked on the show before about my face behind this. <laughs> so I have to keep characters apart by, like, their costumes and the way they're styled and stuff. Because I have, like, some face blindness issues. And... So when you have a whole bunch of actors who are cast to look very similar and then you put them in similar costumes with similar wigs and similar I'm even if you call them by different names I have trouble keeping them separating them the yeah, yeah <laughs> and I yeah. get that that's the point of the of the species but it was like, oh no, we've lost that guy. It's like, what is that guy? Do I, like, I don't know, dude. You all look alike. I'm sorry because you're literally styled the same. So I couldn't keep them apart. I'm sorry. Here's the thing about this: it's like this, this, this serial, this story starts out really strong, and it goes at a really good pace. But by the midpoint, it just slows to a crawl. It's like, we know that this is popular. We know we're getting ratings. So we are going to stretch this story out as much as we can. Well, here's the here's the other part. The stuff with the Daleks is really strong. Hmm. The stuff with the Thals is just so bad. Because the Thals 
are not, it's not a good concept. They're not interesting. Yeah, well, because there's some good philosophical stuff to be said if your idea is when is it important to break a pacifist oath? That's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. And one that Doctor Who has played around with over the years. Okay? Because Doctor Who has never been a show that is entirely pacifist. Doctor Who has been a show that is not always, but it has evolved into a show where now you can say that the philosophy of the show is that violence is acceptable, but it should always be your last resort. So trying to look at a at a group of of beings who have said like, well, we used to be a warrior race, but after this horrible war, we have decided to become pacifists and having the doctor say like, well, look, your survival depends on you finding a reason to fight again, because that's what it's coming down to. The Daleks are like, oh, we didn't realize that Thals had survived. And now that we know Thals have survived, we're going to irradiate the entire planet because we realize that, like, Daleks need radiation because that's what they discover. They they get a hold of the Thal drugs, they take the Thal drugs, and they realize, oh, anti-radiation kills Daleks, so that must mean Daleks need radiation and Thals die from radiation. So more radiation, better for Daleks, bad for Thals. Yay! So, yeah... That's the point. We're, they're gonna. Yeah. They 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 want to make another neutron bomb to re to heighten the level of radiation on the planet, so they can survive and all of the thals can die. There yeah. there is no peace. There is no you there you cannot reason with a Dalek. Yeah. And so if that was the point of the episode of the Doctor trying to be like, look, your survival is literally on the line. You have to choose whether you want to die a pacifist or have a shot at survival by realizing that some things cannot be negotiated with. You know, there there is there is no chance for a peaceful resolution here. It's fight or die. It's a good philosophical debate to have, and honestly, I think it is a good thing to discuss with children. Yeah. Okay, that's a good educational message. However, that's not where they go with it. Um, they go with it with the doctor being like, well, I'm kind of shady and I can't defeat the Daleks with just the four of us. So we have to talk Thals into fighting because I kind of lied to everybody about the broken TARDIS part. Which is not great. <laughs> Which honestly, a lot of people probably would have figured out by this, by you know, by this point. I think even Ian kind of figured that out, but still. My my favorite part though that I kind of laughed at most was Susan helps. She doesn't realize yet what the Daleks are because nobody does. She helps the the Daleks try to broker a meetup with the Thals because the Thals want food the Daleks know how to grow food and they want you know some sort of 
parlay to talk about forging peace and exchanging food. And I love... Apparently, Daleks are gardeners. Well, Daleks know how to create artificial sunlight and a greenhouse. And the Thals have been having trouble growing food because apparently Scaro only gets enough rain to grow food every few years. Because of, you know, the, the damage to the atmosphere from the bombs. And so the Daleks are like, all right, we'll provide food if you come to this you know, peace talk. And I love that the, you know, the budget on the BBC was so low and they were trying to figure out like, what do we put on the table that looks vaguely alien, but is also cheap and we can buy at the green grocer down the road. (laughs) (laughs) And so I love that the idea is like the Thal comes to the peace meeting and the Daleks just standing there and you know that, like, if you had heard, like, the exchange between them, it would be, like, the Dalek just being, like, please come to the peace talk. We have brought you this wonderful bounty of cantaloupe and coconut. Because <laughs> like, it's just a table that's, like, just filled with cantaloupes and coconuts because it's just kind of the most alien food they could kind of get. Because they look vaguely weird. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's not typical food grown in British soil, so... (laughs) It's just the funniest, like, setup of just Daleks standing around a table just piled with coconuts and cantaloupes. (laughs) But I love the old dude that goes to the the peace meeting, the the Thal dude, because they were like, what if it's a trap? And he's like, I will show up unarmed. There is nothing more peaceful than that. That shall prevent a war. And I was like, dude, I am so gonna love watching you get exterminated. <laughs> you are such a dummy. <laughs> well, they've been peaceful for so long, they, they don't know trickery, they don't know shenanigans, and he goes there. He does his big his big hero speech. You know, we can live in peace and unity together. And then the dollar just says, "Fire!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They never actually use the word exterminate during the entire thing, but they they say exterminated or extermination. So it's there. Yeah. But they don't actually run around screaming exterminate during. No during this but it's it's so not close yet. yeah not yet it's so close we're we're almost there but the the sad thing is is that the this particular one does go downhill once it gets to the the, the TARDIS crew leading the Thals in the invasion like two whole episodes it's just them trying to get through the caves in the back of of the Daleks city which is very much the actors doing their best to make us think that they are standing over giant cavernous drops that do not exist. Like, you know that they're, they're standing on their tippy toes just out of camera shot 
it's like going like oh no i hope i don't fall into this crevasse <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> um, and it's just just it's it's very adorable and bless them for it. Uh but early early Doctor Who uh is is such a marvel of of things like that. Um also I know that the floors in the Dalek City are supposed to be metal, but it does sound like the Foley artist is doing every single one of their footsteps with tap shoes. <laughs> and like Susan at least is wearing sensible ballet flats. Like <laughs> I know that's not the sound they're making on those floors. <laughs> but yeah, every mean, time anybody takes a step, it is the sound of like tap shoes on a dance floor. And uh, again, this is early Daleks, so the Daleks can't even leave the city because they generate the, their power for their little tank suits uh, by sliding across the metal floor, connecting using static electricity. That doesn't really have not how it worked, but they power themselves by using by scraping across the floor, creating the electricity to power themselves. So to the point where. They, uh, the crew is able to knock a Dalek onto a cloak and it automatically loses power. So that's that, that's the point. We're going to cut the power to the entire facility and then every Dalek will be dead. I, I like that. And I also like that they make mud using the dirt off of Susan's shoe and then throw it at the eye stalk of the <laughs> Dalek. Um, that one's good. We we do not get a look at what the Dalek mutant looks like, not yet. But we, you know, we get a tiny little taste. We see a couple of the tentacles peek out from underneath a cloak, and a claw that no Dalek mutant would ever have again. Yeah, but again, this is the very beginning. They haven't really figured out what a Dalek mutant looks like yet. But we do know that it's kind of tiny. <laughs> Compared to the to the tank, we also get the TARDIS key from Susan. This is where she loses her first TARDIS key because it uh, gets used to short circuit the Dalek computers. And interestingly, it looks like a normal house key in this. Here, yes. Later on, they would have a more fancier-looking key and then go back to regular house keys for the modern era. The official explanation for that is that there is also a chameleon circuit on the TARDIS key. Yeah, and, you know, it has to be Susan that goes out to the TARDIS because, as she says, there's a special way to open the TARDIS and only her and the doctor know how to do it. And if anyone else does it, the lock will melt. Yeah, apparently the doctor later, as he takes on companions, does like something to the TARDIS keys to prevent that from happening. But he simplifies since, the lock, yeah. Since Barbara and Ian weren't meant to be in the TARDIS, you know, and it's still early in the journey. Yeah, like, uh, like, like I said earlier, he hasn't exactly warmed up to humanity yet. Eventually, you know, half the humans in England will eventually just have a TARDIS key. 
<laughs> but um, I gotta say, this final battle is freaking annoying because you have a Dalek for half this episode counting down. Yeah, they were that they, they had a ring modulator and they were going to use it. And they still use that ring modulator to this day for the Dalek voices. Yeah, that is that is true. Uh, my my favorite thing was was Ian inside the the Dalek suit because that's what happened at one point when when they did uh, Ian inside the Dalek suit and he started talking and it's just it's got the ring modulator on but he's too William Russell's voice is too animated. And they were like, no, 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 you've got to sound like a Dalek. Sound, sound more monotone. <laughs> and then it's him trying again, you know, trying to sound like a Dalek, which I I liked. And then they were like, oh, yes, perfect. But that, that final battle is annoying for more than just the, the Dalek countdown. It is just a really boring finale it's you know, a fight it's a fight scene with people who are obviously not trained stunt people well i mean we couldn't afford stunt people we'd spend it all on the daleks so they're just twirling around they're they're trying to do what they can to try to make it look like it's a fight and it just looks it yeah it's 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 it's, it's not good but they they try i i mean it's really hard, even to this day, to choreograph a fight scene with the Daleks. Because Daleks can't really fight. They can shoot, you know? So when you have Dalek fight scenes now, with the Doctor Who budget now, you know, where you can have special effects and stuff... Um, they do laser blasts and explosions and stuff, but you can't really have like hand to hand fight choreography with a Dalek. That's the problem is that you've got a pacifist race who don't have any weapons, so they have to come in and do hand to hand combat because they don't have blasters or anything so you can't do that and also we don't have the budget to do blasters so you have to have like a bunch of blonde guys run in and punch a Dalek suit I mean which... they didn't even have enough for laser effects they just invert the colors they just invert the film stock for the exterminations yeah, and at one point, it kind of looks like they dropped, you know, acid on the film stock to make it bubble or something. Because it kind of looks at one point when the, the Dalek shoots his laser that the it's like a, a bubble effect. It looks like the Dalek shoots acid or something at the wall. So I don't I don't know exactly what that was, but it doesn't look like a like a laser blast, you know. But yeah, I mean, mostly the, the Dalek laser blasts are inverted, you know, which they still kind of do. 
Um, With a little bit of green. Yeah, it, it's done green, and they do like the the X-ray, yeah, kind of effect, which is their throwback homage to the way it used to be done in these early episodes. It's their their way of saying like, well, you know, we we understand that we have better effects now, but we're going to have that sort of similar aesthetic, even though we can up the and why is it green well you know tvs were black and white then it was always green you just couldn't see it <laughs> um evil green it's always evil yeah green. Uh, yeah every villain is lime <laughs> uh but i i i mean i like i like what they what they did we we know that this is not the best first doctor story it's not even the best first Doctor Dalek story. Yeah, but the reason we decided to do this one is because we wanted to know what it was that gripped the public imagination so much that it made this show the biggest thing on British television in the span of six weeks. Yeah. Because the fact that this went from a show that was destined to fail, that was meant to end the career of the first woman producer at the BBC, that everyone on week four was expecting to lose their jobs, and by week six or seven was the talk of an entire nation Daleks were everywhere everything was yeah. Dalek we had da you know Dalek the t-shirt Dalek the lunchbox Dalek the song Dalek the yeah. song because there was a song called I want to spend Christmas with a Dalek I'm gonna spend my Christmas with a Dalek and hug him underneath the mistletoe and if he's very nice I'll feed him sugar spice and hang a Christmas stocking from his big left toe. This was and is the phenomenon that ate the world, you know? I mean, yeah. And like I said, this was the end of November into early January. So this was, you know, it's kids are home during some of this during the Christmas time, during Christmas time watching this. Doctor, you know, Doctor Who at Christmas from the very beginning. Yeah, it's it's not Christmas with, without Doctor Who. And it it's been like that since 1963, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is though is that even being, you know, critical from a modern standpoint and looking back on what it would become and knowing, you know, what it would be and could be, you can still see it, you know? Yeah, you can kind of see the beginnings here. You can kind of see, even if, again, this is not the best Dalek story, this is not even the best first Doctor story, not even the first, not even the best first Doctor Dalek story, but you can see 
the beginnings of greatness here. You can see what gripped the nation. You can see how this show became such a popular part of British pop culture for 60 years. And you can understand what all those little kids in 1963 saw. It's really interesting to to think about what the people who are creating or have recently created, you know, mm-hmm. in the the modern era. I mean, time travel in a phone box. You 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 didn't think Bill and Ted was inspired by Doctor Who? I mean, almost everything now is inspired by Doctor Who in some sense. It's so weird what it has gone on to inspire. And I mean, we're going to talk about it over the course of the year. All of the things that, you know, have seeped into it. Yeah. But it's it's so interesting to to look back on it and see these early beginnings and the people who fought so hard for that, you know? Like I said, Verity Lambert fought. She put everything on the line because she believed in this show. Yeah, and I mean, and not to not to sell Sydney Newman short by any by any means. Yeah, I yeah. mean it was I mean, it was very much partnership in in the beginning. Verity Lambert, the doctor's mother, Sydney Newman, the doctor's father. Yeah, and I mean you can't thank either of them enough for putting this together and giving something that we're still talking about and that so many other people have been able to come along and put their mark on and of course you know they didn't intend it to be a 60 year project I mean we we have to talk about you know how we ended up and of course when when we get next time we'll talk about it in in more depth but of course, you know, William Hartnell did not sign up to be on anything super long term. No show at in the 60s was meant to last forever. You know, you came on TV, you did a couple of years, and then you left. But Doctor Who was doing so well that they were like, well, you know, this is the biggest thing on television. And suddenly our lead star has become sick. You kind of see the notes here at the beginning of Hartnell flubbing lines. And, and you know, he even collapses on, on set in one episode to the point where they had to write that into the script because they couldn't do the take two, like we said. Yeah. So, and- so it's like... His health was was fading, and so, he he only he only stayed on for the first you know three years. Or so, um, and it's the biggest show on TV, and 
I mean, BBC finally has, you know, merchandising lines. What, what, what are, what are they going to do? I mean, and can you imagine you have the biggest show on your network and your lead is slowly and slowly becoming physically unable to do this role? What do you do? Do you end the show or do you take the biggest risk and recast your lead? The idea of regeneration of, oh, this is an alien. We don't know how aliens work. Maybe aliens are capable of making themselves look entirely different. Maybe that's how he's a new actor now. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most brilliant moves in television history. That idea of regeneration. Yeah, the I, but that was like the big risk. You know, you can change the companions and we've and we do that several times in Hartnell's era. You know, Susan eventually leaves. Ian and Barbara eventually leaves. He gets different companions. Yeah, but but to let's, change the lead, you know. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about let's talk about uh, you know, since since we're we're not going to be with them anymore, let's just mention kind of what happened to the, these these characters since we we probably won't see them again on our travels susan would have would be the first of the companions to leave one year um, later yeah caroline ford had been told when she joined the show that susan would be much like emma peel was in the avengers like we said both both sydney lambert I mean, both Sidney Newman and Verity Lambert had worked on the Avengers and Susan was pitched to Caroline Ford as basically Emma Peel, but an alien. Um, she was going to have stylish, she was going to have stylish 60s clothing. She was going to be very capable and able to fly the TARDIS. She was going to be able to take care of herself and take no nonsense from nobody. She was going to have telepathic powers. And then after she accepted the role, it became she's going to be an everyday ordinary teenage girl and she's going to stand around in her school clothes and scream a lot yeah she so this was not what she signed up for yeah so caroline ford decided uh very quickly that she found the show and her part rather boring and she wanted to move on from the show and her career um Susan ended up meeting a man. Yeah, she she met a man called David Campbell, who was a freedom fighter in the 22nd century. And uh, the doctor uh, 
you know, Susan wants to stay with the doctor because, you know, well, I need to take care of my grandfather. But the doctor says, no, 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 you're a grown woman. I will be fine without you. I still have Barbara and Ian. They can take care of me. Go on and live your life and, you know, have a husband and, you know, do whatever. And so we're going to talk. I mean, that tends to be of the early era of Doctor Who. That tends to be a lot of the lady companions end up falling in love with a guy they just met and leaving the TARDIS. That ends uh, Susan's story. She did. She did come back. Um, like I said uh, about the five daughters, she she did come back. However, they don't mention her husband. <laughs> Once it gets to um, the seventh doctor, he says he doesn't know if he has family anymore. Once the Time Lord War happens, the Ninth Doctor definitively says he's the, the last of the Time Lords because he doesn't know about the Master yet. He also says, the Ninth Doctor also says that his entire family dies and Tenth Doctor reiterates that he was a dad once and his family is all gone now. Eleventh Doctor mentions having traveled with his granddaughter. And the Twelfth uh, Doctor has a picture of Susan in the episode where um, his companion Bill is introduced. In, in the Also in the Twelfth Doctor, in one of the Twelfth Doctor stories with Clara, Clara mentions the doctor's children and grandchildren and says that they are missing and presumed dead. So make of that what you want. There are um, people who want Susan to come back and potentially regenerate into a new version of Susan and travel with the doctor again. It's probably never going to happen. As for Barbara and Ian, they leave the TARDIS um, not long after, and they leave together using a Dalek time machine to get back to their own time, although they end up two years after their initial disappearance um, from the time stream. So they, they end up more or less back where they started. Um, Ian is still alive because uh, he has shown up recently. Yeah, the but the um it was said that yeah, they kind of have broken it just recently, but um in one of the Sarah Jane stories, um she had told the uh the doctor, uh that one was the 11th doctor, I believe, so Matt Smith um, that she had looked into what had happened to Barbara and Ian and that they had ended up married once they got back to Earth and that they ended up professors at Cambridge University and that, interestingly, they had not aged since the 60s. 
And which gets thrown out <laughs> if you watch The Power of the Doctor, because William Russell has come back as Ian as he is now. Old man William Russell. <laughs> so, eh, but I'm glad that they brought back William Russell, even for that five seconds he's on screen. Yeah, that that bit about the aging, though, I, I would have liked for them to to have kept, although it, it's, it's nice that William Russell, you know, has come back. I mean, it's nice when people come back. I'm not, yeah. I'm not knocking it, but that, that bit about why were they the ones to have not, you know, was it the use of the Dalek time machine? Was it the, you know, that one little thing of they were the ones that had stopped aging was, was such a nice little interesting nod for, for them, you know, that's what uh, ended up happening to to those companions as they they phased out. Uh, by the time we pick back up with Doctor Who, we will have a new Doctor and new companions. But uh, that will that will be later on. We have something entirely different for you next week. So we are going into a different universe leaving the universe of Doctor Who and sliding back into the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. As we take a look at, for the first time on the show, one of the Netflix shows. Yeah, we're getting into The Defenders as we talk season one of Daredevil. Yeah, we are gearing up for an eventual return of Daredevil. Um, so we thought it was time we start to look back at the uh, original series that they did for the MCU. Back in the time when the rights were still kind of weirdly split. So we had... Uh, Technically under the Marvel banner, but also done by Netflix and sort of MCU adjacent-ish, but kind of doing its own thing in a weird pocket universe. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to it. We'll get to it all. Come back next week for season one of Daredevil, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues.